Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Happy Sunday. Welcome to uh, the family members and friends that are here for the, uh, the child dedication. Um, many of you, uh, it's good to have uh, the age, the, uh, the average range of age in our, in our gathering today is a little bit higher, and I am grateful for it. Uh, I can just feel the wisdom emanating off of you. Man, uh, I am, I'm incredibly excited uh, not only to be here, but even with this dedication that we just did, I mean, this is one of those little signs uh, these moments where we remind ourselves that we are a community that's committed to following Jesus. And, and committed not just to following Jesus, but to raising one another up in that kind of collective calling. And that includes even the little ones among us. And that this work is, as, the, as our name, church, a collective, implies, this is something that's not just done by the parents raising these children up in the way of Jesus, but you are all involved in that as well. Not just as you encourage us or you pray for us, but even for many of you as you serve in our kids' ministry each week, where you're getting to enter into and participate in that collective work of raising these little ones in the way of Jesus. Man, I, we need your help at the end of the day. And so we're grateful for your prayers. We're grateful for those of you that serve because, man, do we need your help in this task that we've been given as parents to raise healthy adults and disciples out of what are now, in essence, just little drunk cavemen. (laughs) This is my experience and every single one of us that as we walk through our lives, we just, it's it's like you're trying to shepherd and, and herd around, like, you know. Some of you, depending on, you know, your, your earlier years, the, you know, just like your drunk friend at a party. He's like, no, man, come over here. Don't put your hand on that. Don't put that in your mouth. Like, stop. Why are you sleeping on the ground? This is our whole experience as parents. And, and that is the task, is to create out of that, uh, shepherd into that something that uh, resembles a functioning adult and, and hopefully a disciple of Jesus. But we've been experiencing this difficulty in our own uh, family, in our home right now, is we have not just uh, little Arlo, but we also have our five-year-old daughter, Emma. And Emma is having to get used to the reality of a toddler in the house with her. Emma has grown up, and one of her favorite things to do is to build these towers in her room, whether that's with Duplos or Legos or these little Picasso tiles, these little magnetic, you know, plastic tiles. And she builds up these, it's her favorite thing to do. And she puts inside of them all her little dolls and Lego pieces, and it's, it's her favorite thing to do. And now, as one of these little things has begun to walk around in her room, it's, it's, this, it's every single day as a Godzilla retelling. Where Arlo comes into this room and this little grunting tornado deconstructs and rips down everything that she's building. And it happened this, literally this morning as I was getting ready uh, for the day. As I heard Emma freaking out and crying. Why? Once again, one of her towers had been knocked over and you hear the cackle of the drunk caveman as he laughs at what he's done. It's been said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. I believe that may have some truth to it, but the higher truth is if you want to make a toddler laugh, tell them your plans. They have a way of getting after all of it and just deconstructing, taking it all down. And and in this, toddlers are a lot like the book that we began last week. We began a series last week, for those of you that are new with us, uh, in a series that we're calling Smoke and Mirrors, Deconstructing Los Angeles with the Book of Ecclesiastes. And what we've been doing within this, uh, st- this study is looking at this ancient book and finding what it says about our lives here in La La Land. What does it mean to find the good life? And what does it mean to live responsibly and with the right expectations for life in Los Angeles? Last week, we began with the preacher, or as we've been calling him, the deconstructor, who opens with one big question. You'll see it behind me in chapter 1, verse 3. His question was, 
What does a person gain by all their toil under the sun? What do you get for all of your building, all of your sleepless nights, your long work, your whole life lived? At the end of it all, what do you have to gain? And over the course of the poem that we looked at last week, he summarized, you have vanity. You have, as we've been calling it, smoke and mirrors. You have nothing lasting, nothing significant, and nothing satisfying. At the end of it all, this is what you have in front of you. Happy Sunday. (laughs) And the reality is, is that what we were reflecting on last week is the fact that that might be true, but we live in the city of Los Angeles, which holds us out and invites us into a way of building up these Duplo towers with our lives. And we get all excited about what we're building. And then we, like Emma, freak out and get frustrated when it all comes crumbling down. And the deconstructor is trying to help us get the right expectations for life. That you need to live with a a posture of just, you're you're ready for the, the cosmic toddler to come in and tear it all down. Because that's going to happen. If not now, it ultimately will when you die. This is what the book is developing for us. And so today... As we continue, the deconstructor, the preacher is going to continue in moving from asking, what do we get from underneath the sun and finding not really anything lasting, significant, or satisfying, to asking, how then should we live? What is the good life in a world where nothing is significant, satisfying, or lasting? If you're able, would you join me in standing as we read from Ecclesiastes today, beginning in verse 12. As I say each week, if you're new with us, what we do in standing is this is a way of identifying with our bodies, like when we raise our hands in worship or when you kneel in prayer, that this is something, there's something special and profound when the gathered people of Jesus read scriptures together. So that being said, Ecclesiastes 1, beginning in verse 12. It opens saying, I, the preacher or the deconstructor, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. But I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom, there's much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it's madness, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pool with which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem." 
I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. In all of this, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom, it remained within me. And whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So then I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been done before. Then I saw that there is more gain, yes, in wisdom than folly, as there's more gain in light than darkness. The wise person has eyes in their head, but the fool walks around in the darkness. But I perceived that the same thing happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been forgotten. How the wise dies like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, sensing I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or a fool, yet he's going to be the master of everything I've been toiling for. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my work under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? All of his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even at night he can't find rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better. There is nothing better than for a person that they should eat and drink and find enjoyment in their toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. From apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This too is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's say a quick prayer. So Father, we pray that you would speak today. God, guide us in what seems to be quite a long text, but one that speaks to the heart of everything that motivates every single day. God, speak. Help us to find true wisdom and a true life in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and be seated, please. A moment ago, I talked about how uh, in the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 3, you'll see it again behind me. The preacher opened last week by asking, what does a person gain by all their toil under the sun? And what he found was what? Nothing lasting, nothing significant, nothing satisfying. All is smoke and mirrors. Today, just a chapter later, in the middle of that long thing that we just read, in chapter 2, verse 3, there was this one connecting line of how this week connects to last week. Chapter 2, verse 3, the preacher, the deconstructor said, I searched with my heart till I might find what was good for humans to do under heaven during the few days of their life. 
This very long passage is almost read and we had to keep it all together because the whole point is this is what the deconstructor says. In light of everything being smoke and mirrors, where is the good life? What is the good life in a life where you don't have control, where everything is fleeting and you will ultimately die and render it? What is the good life and where is it found? And the compass that seems to be guiding him is this search with his heart. To summarize the almost chapter and a half that we just read, you could say that this is all about, you'll see it behind me, the search for the good life and following your heart. Over 14 times in the passage, we find that his search for what is the good, he reflects on it with the language of, I searched with my heart, I applied with my heart, I looked with my heart. He is looking for what is good in these fleeting lives that you lived, and he allows his heart to be the compass. And, and really, what he does over the course of this chapter and a half is he follows his heart on three primary searches. One that, that you know, you're like, how in the world is Ryan going to preach a chapter and a half today? Well, we're going to bring lunch in about halfway through. We're not, there's no catering today. You can actually break this down pretty simply when you begin to see, one, that he's looking for three searches. He's got three main searches he's looking for. He details how he tests the thing he's searching for, and then he names the result, and then we get to see inside what's at the heart of that searching. So you look, his search, his testing, the results, and the heart of it. Once you see this, it breaks down a little bit. Let's look at the first, the first big search. What's the first thing he looks for? One, verse 13 and 14, what does he say? I applied with my heart to what? The business that humanity is busy with. All the things that are done under the sun. Everything that we do. This language of business. The toil word that you saw over and over again. The first place the deconstructor looks for some semblance of the good life under the sun is in his work. He goes to test his work by, if you look at two, verses four through eight, that long list of all the things that he did. His LinkedIn profile. And you find all of the great works that he did. He, what is he building gardens and he's got pools and he's amassing servants and slaves from him. He's building everything. He makes a giant name for himself. He is, the, the language that we would give him, this self-starting entrepreneur. He literally builds an empire, not just figuratively. He's the epitome of, you know, as we've been com comparing this book to Los Angeles, the kind of L.A. hustle, that grit, the determination, that carpe diem kind of like struck that you, we just, we, we get shaped in every single day. The way to the good life is a hustle. The god of hustle in Los Angeles, we could say, is Dwayne Johnson, the rock. He has this quote, man, that he just says, with, with drive and a bit of talent, you can move mountains. And, and we all believe this. You absolutely believe this. The main thing that's probably keeping you from the things that you want is hustle. It's the grit and the determination to go out and get it. And, and the deconstructor says, so I went after it. I, I, I built up this in giant resume. I, built, I went after my work with all that I could and I, built, I have an incredible thing to show for it. But what are the results that he gives? It's smoke and mirrors. It's vanity. It's chasing the wind. Why? In verse uh, 15 of chapter 1, he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. This is his way of saying to Dwayne Johnson, There are some mountains that just can't be moved, no matter how much grit you have. 
There are, some, there are some things that are crooked that you can't put back into place. There are some things that you can count because they're just not there. And no matter how hard you run, no matter how late you stay up, no matter if you've got the bullet journal or the getting things done workbook and you've got the to-do list or you've got Trello, you, there's, there's a certain amount of work you just can't get done. He acknowledges that work works, but it's weak. <laughs> There is something that our work brings out of our lives, but at the end of the day, that this desire for it to bring, it just, it, there's a limit to our work. In 2, 18 through 23, what did he detail? Is that the biggest punch of all the work is, is even though there's some things that you can't put right, even the work that you do do and the work that does amount to something, you ultimately leave to somebody else. And, and, and whether it's your, your family, it's your children, they're going to fight over who can have it. Some of you are watching Succession on HBO. This is exactly what this is about. Someone who's built an empire and the family conniving and striving to get what they can while they can from it. Whether they're a wise or a fool, you don't know. And so whether it's a brand that you build, a company that you build, whether it's a wealth that you amass, it is going to go to someone else and you don't know how they're going to spend it. I have a family member that received this, this great, huge inheritance and spent it on trivialities and stupidity. The whole life of their parents, building up to give a gift for them, something that they could build their life with, and they wasted it. The, this is what the deconstructor says. It's smoke and mirrors. Anything that you build, you may not be able to experience it in this life, and if you, if you give it to someone else, you are going to die, and it's going to be left behind. And so you're running and rushing. You're exhausted and vexed, he says, because you are trying to, to run after something that it can't provide it for you. The language that we have for this today is burnout. Philosopher Byung-Chul Han, he's a, a Korean-born German philosopher. He wrote a book called Burnout Society that is fantastic. What he gets to is what's going on underneath all of the burnout sensation that's happening specifically within kind of my generation, the millennials. Why are we all getting so burnt out at work? And this isn't what, what's going on there. Is it that we're working too much? Is it that we've been, you know, what's going on here? What he details is the main problem of where this is coming from is the millennials were the first generation who were given a message of no limits and no possibilities, that you can be whatever you want to if you just work hard enough. With enough grit and determination, you can build yourself into anything. And so your expectations have a huge chasm between reality. And when you fall into that, there is where burnout happens. For all the work that you do, you may not and probably won't be a world changer. And you trying and believing and, and receiving that message growing up that you will be is in fact the very thing that makes your, what makes what the deconstructor says, it makes you hate your work. And you see, all of this then reveals the heart behind our work. What's going on behind that search? Why do we go for work? Is we are searching for a power over the smoke and mirrors. Some understanding that if I give myself enough hustle, if I go after and with enough grit and determination that yes, everything may not be lasting or significant or satisfying, but that's for everybody else. If I work hard enough, if I give myself to my work and dedicate myself unendingly, then actually I can be lasting. I can be something significant. I can be satisfied. But what he says is this too is chasing wind. It's smoke and mirrors. It's vanity. So the deconstructor becomes disillusioned at the weakness of his work, that it cannot provide power over the smoke and mirrors, the unpredictability of this world. 
And so he follows his heart into a second search of the good life, the search for wisdom, another one of those repeated words in the passage. In 117, what does he say? I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. I, I, I set out to receive the spectrum of human knowledge and all that humans have ascertained. And so he tests it in verse 16. I found great wisdom. My wisdom surpassed all who went before me. I found great wisdom and experience of great knowledge. If the deconstructor was in Los Angeles, we would say that he became a thought leader. We could say that he achieved the academic chair, that, that he prized not just one, but multiple TED Talks and, and a, you know, the, one of the most popular podcasts, acting as this how-to sage for the good life. He brought it all together. This kind of search for or, or search to become kind of like the sage is, is similarly the testing that we all set out in our lives. It permeates Los Angeles. People that hold out the wisdom that if you want the good life, it is found in this wisdom, whether that's crypto or green smoothies, whether that is attachment parenting or baby-wise, whether that's therapy or meditation, whether that's gluten-free, whether that's cleansing and charging your crystals or your Enneagram, whether that's as a reversal of work, getting into slow productivity. We chase after someone provide me with the wisdom of how to find the good life. And what are the results of this? 1 verse 17, it's chasing wind, he says. Not for, for multiple reasons. In verse 18, he says what? For in much wisdom, there's much vexation. He who grows in their knowledge increases in their sorrow. The more you know, the, the more anxiety you're going to have. The more you get into financial planning, the more you're gonna freak out about, oh my goodness, like there's just, I, I've gotta keep in track on all of this stuff if this is actually gonna play in my favor. The more you know about like attachment parenting or the know you more about baby wise and you know about the, the psychological basis of what happens within parenting, the, the more that you get into like, the, the more you get exhausted and like terrified at like, what am I, I, what am I putting onto my kids as I'm raising them? The more that you, you study and you get wisdom about health, the more you're just anxious constantly about what you're eating and what you're putting into your body. There's, there's no rest in this wisdom. It's, it's, it actually makes you more tired. And even more than that, in 2 verse 12, he says that, that, that what's so frustrating about this is the fact that it can't change other people. I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, but he says, what can, what can someone do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. His whole point is saying, man, no matter how wise you get, your wisdom can't control or change other people. So you're chasing after and trying, but the whole point is it's, it doesn't have any implications on the world because at the end of the day, it can't change anyone else. And so you're reading every book that you can, but it doesn't have any outward implications. And then finally in verses 2, 13 through 14, he says that wisdom is better, but it's broken. He goes, man, I, here's what I've seen in my life, that when I walked in wisdom on one level, it was better than, than walking around and being stupid, than being an idiot. My life did go better. But it was broken in the fact that, that chaos happens, chance happens. And I have no control, no matter how smart and wise I am, over the things that happen and I have no control over them. And at the end of my life is what ultimately happens is I'm going to die. Just like the fool. My wisdom has no control over the fact that I am not here forever. I'm going to die regardless. And so does he say, not that I hated my work, but I hated my life. 
In this, what we find is, is this reveals the heart of our wisdom. Why do we go searching for a good life in wisdom? Is we are searching for not power over the smoke and mirrors, the unpredictability of the world, but, but protection from it. If I have the right amount of wisdom and knowledge and information, I will be able to shield myself from the dangers of a world where nothing is lasting, significant, or satisfying. And so we, we, with, we take on information and books and podcasts and everything that we can, the wisdom and the experiences that we can, and we put it on like this shielding to try to protect us from our fears of this world. And the preacher says, I- I'm sorry, but it doesn't work. No matter how smart you are, that death is still coming <laughs> and, it, and you can't control other people. So now the deconstructor becomes not just disillusioned with the weakness of work, but the vulnerability of wisdom. And so maybe third time's a charm. The deconstructor follows his heart to one last place, the search for pleasure. At the beginning of chapter two, verses one through three, he says, I said to my heart, come, I'm gonna test my heart with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, go after it, cheer my body. I wanted to figure out how to do this. And so he tests his heart. With again, this long list where in two verse two, he goes after laughter. In two verses, uh, two verse three, after alcohol. In two verse four, after arts and entertainment. Two verses five through six, nature. Two, seven through eight, after money and possessions. Two verse uh, eight, he continues then and says that I, you know, I got all these singers for myself. Man, it's music. I turned my house into a concert hall. 2 verse 8 continues even further where then he talks about concubines. He goes, I look for pleasure in sex. The only limits to, to my searching being my desire and my libido. And then he finishes by saying, all of this being for myself, that I search for the pleasure of honor and affirmation of others. Now this list in many ways seems overwhelming, but at the same time, it also seems like a slow Tuesday in Los Angeles. Of these pleasures, of these being the things that we look for and long for and we hope to find something there. And what does the preacher say? What are the results? Two verses one through two. It's smoke and mirrors. It's chasing wind. It's it's mad. It's madness. Why? Monday always comes. What happens in Vegas does does not stay there. The pleasures that you're searching for have an end and implications that follow. Chris Kidd is an actor and, and poet who's based in Los Angeles. As he puts it, he says, in Los Angeles, sunrise feels like a guilt trip. That there is a pleasure chasing that results in very little. And even more than that, as he says, what use of is it? He looks at the diminishing returns on our pleasure whether that's substances or experiences, the next thing can't just be doing the same thing again. It has to be even better and even more. And in fact, I mean, this is what's so profound is is his levels of privilege as a king to be able to have all of these things in his day. For us, I, I have a phone in my pocket that can provide me with all of these within five minutes. And what has it led to is, I mean, just take the example of music. You and I have the the possibility of having 50 million songs in your pocket right now. And what has it led to us is not a culture that has a greater appreciation for music than before. It's background music. So we've actually lost the pleasure 
in the fact that it's become more ubiquitous. The same thing has happened with laughter, happens with alcohol, with substances, with art and entertainment. Happens even within our sexuality. I mean, here we are. We are in the, one of the, the most sex-positive cultures, arguably within human history. Yeah, ancient Rome's pretty on par with us. More sex-positive than ever. More openness and willingness, and even, like I said, with, with this you know, device in our pockets, I mean, we, just, we, have, we have possibilities, endless possibilities that, that the deconstructor couldn't even dream of. And what has it led to is what's shocking sociologists is a decreased levels of sex among all, all across the board. So, so the liberation of Woodstock and sexual freedom is actually what it's led to is actually less and less of it. And, and even in uh, Billie Eilish's, her interview with Rolling Stone, she actually identified that it, it she's com- like, it's, man, it's worth a read. Disillusioned with this vision of sexuality that's been provided to us. And so the whole point is, once again, this reveals what's, what's at the heart then of our search for pleasure. We could say that it's not a power over the smoke and mirrors or protection from it, but a, a party in it. Where we just say, you know what? Yeah, clearly our work isn't doing anything to, that we can have power over it. Our wisdom offers no protection. So let's just enjoy ourselves as the Titanic goes down. Either distracting ourselves or trying to find some little form of satisfaction in the meantime. And so after hearing the deconstructor, we actually double down on finding satisfaction or distraction. And what is the deconstructor? This too, it's smoke and mirrors. Monday always comes. And, and actually you chasing after pleasure will actually lead for, for a lessened enjoyment of it and not a greater one. At the end of his testing, the deconstructor has found that following your heart is chasing after the wind. And, and we have to be aware of the fact that this truth is inescapable. And you know it, you and I know it. For those of us, when we stop and look long and hard enough at our own lives or at those in the city around us, we know this to be true. Because we, we find as, as Los Angeles is called to, to come to the city, to reinvent yourself, to work, learn, and enjoy, to follow your heart, is what does it result in? Everybody's vexed and sorrow. We hate our work and we hate our lives. And, and the deconstructor is trying to save you and I from something here. He's trying to provide us with renewed expectations for this all. Because each day we're being sold and shaped by the false advertising of smoke and mirrors around our work, our wisdom, and pleasure, and none of us are immune. Over your life, you will find seasons where maybe one of these might be more prevalent than others, but all three are present within us. And I'm not, I'm not even immune to this. I mean, come on, my work as a pastor, this happened this week with this sermon right now and trying to write this. Is I'm like working over this all week long because at the end of the day, there's some belief that if I work and hustle and my work is great and good enough that we can be able to build this church community that's lasting, significant, and satisfying for everyone. And when I chase after that, I set myself in the gulf between my expectations and what's actually the reality. That's, that's the danger point of, of burnout, isn't it? This happens with me with my wisdom. 
Where, man, I, I have just noticed within myself, I have this proclivity that works really well for me having a nice library, but I chase after books. If I can get the right wisdom about how to be a pastor or a preacher or a self or my marriage or my parenting or my relationships, if I can get the books and the wisdom around me, then I can change others. And I can protect myself from all of the mess of this world and I can find the good life. And, and what is that? Smoke and mirror, that, that's not how reality works. And yet, we do this, don't we? And me too, man, the pleasure. The, I, I have this heart that is so prone to just exist like this black hole of experiences, longing for satisfaction, whether that's laughter or food or music or games or concerts or friendship. Every single game night is never enough, and I want it to be. And even, you know, some of us, we kind of, you know, we look at like, oh, the, the sex with the concubines is what he's talking about here. No, even within the context of like marriage, it's not, it's, you're not going to be fully satisfied. And that's, that's actually a lie brought up by purity culture, which we'll deconstruct later, that says if you enter into this perfect thing, that no, but the whole point is, there is, your, your heart is actually this black hole of experiences and all of the pleasures of this life, as good as they are, cannot satisfy and they cannot distract you from your death. And here's the thing, I'm teaching this right now. I know this to be true. I know that my greatest work is still weak. I know that my greatest wisdom still leaves me vulnerable and my greatest pleasures cannot distract or satisfy. I know in my mind it's all chasing after the wind, but the distance from my mind to my heart seems to be as wide as the city that we live in. And along my, that truth's commute home to my heart, it loses its way and it forgets. In fact, as Angelinos, it's the one thing we are actually predisposed to being very good at. As Norman Klein described in his book, The History of Forgetting, Los Angeles and the Erasure of Memory. What he goes on to describe is Los Angeles is a city that is built on moving past the hard realities of what has happened within its city to, to move on to the brighter futures ahead most of the time just repeating what it had fallen over in the past. We are shaped in a city that we continue to shake ourselves off and we just keep swimming. But the deconstructor won't let you and I forget. He has something better for you and me as we begin to wrap up. In 2 verse 24 at the very end, what does he say? There is nothing better. He says, at the end of my searching, I've determined that the best life possible under the sun, the best life possible in the land of smoke and mirrors where nothing is lasting, significant, or satisfying is to find enjoyment in your work, your wisdom, and pleasure in and of themselves without the wind-chasing expectations for them to provide something they can't. to receive them even more, as he says, with those limitations, with the fact that they don't fully satisfy, with the fact that they don't offer this power to be able to change the world, that they, they can't fully protect you as still being a gift from the hand of God. A gift that is in verse 25, he says, sourced in him, apart from him, who can have enjoyment? These things being sourced in God. He invites us to this humble posture which instead of striving and chasing after protection and power and satisfaction, to receiving our work, our wisdom, and our pleasure with their limitations as a gift all the same, 
and looks for how they are sourced in God. And so those who live with this humble posture are what verse 26 says are the one who pleases God. Those are the ones that actually find enjoyment with their work. They find enjoyment with their wisdom, as it says. And so the invitation for you and I is to, is, is to say, maybe the, the fact that I feel burnt out with my work, maybe the fact that I am exhausted with wisdom, maybe the fact that I'm, I'm at my wit's end with my pleasure is the fact that I've been expecting them for so long to be something that they cannot be. Because this is in contrast to, in verse 26, who the deconstructor refers to as the, the sinner, the one who misses the mark. They're the one who continues to gather and collect the, the greatness, the winds of work, wisdom, and pleasure, ultimately to just lose them. And then he ends with this, this too, is vanity and, and chasing after wind. And so this is where we move into seeing exactly what Jesus is inviting us to as well. That the deconstructor, for all of his hard words, is not that far off from the words of Jesus. Jesus would regularly ask questions like, for what will it profit a person if they gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Or in the parable of the rich man, he tells the story of the fool who built up these huge towers, amassing all of his wealth and resources, only to finally go, I've done it, I'm sad, and then to find out that he dies that night. And who's, who's it gonna go to now? The deconstructor and even Jesus' invitation would be, what if you renewed, what if you reconstructed your vision of these things into one that allowed yourself to humbly receive them as a gift and to quit striving and straining? Because what he says is when you strive, when you accumulate, you collect, at the end of the day, you will, you will only lose it. And not just lose it, it actually says that it's gonna go to someone else. It's gonna be given to the person who pleases God. Now, this is part of why I've been banging my head against the wall each week is trying to figure out how do we summarize all this in just a few seconds. So bear with me. The, the whole point of what he says here is, I mean, just to read this, the whole point of the, the, the one who misses the mark is they're going after, they're chasing the wind, and it says only to give to the one who pleases God, only to the one who has this humble receiving posture. But the, the thing that's strange, though, is that when we read that, that's not anyone's experience. I'm not getting any, like, benefits, I don't have people that are walking and being like, hey, I just, you know, accumulated this for you and you're, you know, one who pleases God. I'm like, oh, thanks for the wad of cash. That doesn't happen. If that does to you, I, I don't know what you're doing that I'm not, but I need to hear about it. The whole point is the deconstructor is not describing a present reality here. After a whole chapter of him going, I have seen, I saw, I see, and him seeing things in the present reality as they are, he here is holding out some kind of uh, a future unseen reversal and God putting things to right. This gets brought back up in the last, literally the last verse of the book where it says, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so the deconstructor stands here with this hazy hope because he's trying to give you the good life under the sun with the limited days that you have. And he's able to go, man, the best thing for you is, is you need to transform your expectations. But he also, rooted in the character of God, says, but you also need to have some kind of trusting anticipation that the way that this world is and the way that it works right now is not the way that it's meant to be. And that God is the only one who truly does have that power, that wisdom, that, that ability to do something about it. 
And so instead of you striving and trying to change something you can't, he invites you to transform your expectations and now try to live your life within those while looking forward to someday when God's gonna put everything right. And and it's specifically the people that are gonna receive that God putting the things right are those who trust him now. Those who walk with him humbly now. As Jesus said, blessed are, are the meek, blessed are the humble. They're the ones who are going to inherit the earth. It's kind of the dynamic, I, th- I believe, of what the deconstructor is setting up for us. And so this hazy hope for the deconstructor is one which Jesus made clear for us. What the deconstructor is looking off in the distance and can't seem to name, Jesus identifies as the kingdom of God. This, this, this work which Jesus is doing, this rule of God over the earth, where he is taking it as it is in its brokenness and us in our brokenness and our wind chasing and working slowly within it to recover and renew it into what it was meant to be. This is something that began in his resurrection and will be completed in Jesus' return. And those who are Christians reading the book of Ecclesiastes, that is how we walk out this book with transformed expectations for life under the sun, but with this trusting anticipation that I believe that something is going to be done about it. And my one source for hope in that is looking back at the resurrection of Jesus and going, that's, that's why I believe that this world is not the end. And so this is the posture that we're invited to. To end our striving after what can only be found in God through trust, the thing that actually you're looking for in your work with power, your wisdom with protection, or with your pleasures with satisfaction, with that trusting anticipation, we say the thing that I'm looking for in my work is the thing that I ultimately need to trust God with, and that is power over the smoke and mirrors. The protection that I look to my wisdom for, a trusting anticipation looks to, I'm gonna trust Jesus as the one who eternally is going to protect me and commit me to his kingdom. And this pleasure of longing for satisfaction, being able to go, I'm gonna look fully and wholly to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you be the source of my pleasure? And help me as I go through my pleasures in this life to see them as being sourced in you, to see my wisdom as being reflected in you, to see my work as being something that points to you. And so practically, there's many ways for us to to bring this into our weeks. We're gonna unpack a bunch more in the weeks to come because these three are gonna be detailed more. But today, those of us that would say, okay, I want to live with these transformed expectations and this this trusting anticipation, how do I do this? There's a lot to be said, but for today, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, this American theologian who wrote the Serenity Prayer. Some of you have heard of it. Uh, It's largely used within Alcoholics Anonymous and wonderfully works within that. Um, I, I think just about everybody should be praying it on a regular basis. And so what we're going to do together is I want to set this before you as a potential regular prayer if, as we're trying to move in this direction. And uh, we're going to close our time together by uh, praying, uh, praying the serenity prayer together. You'll see it behind me. So why don't you pray with me, and then we'll move into a time of response. The uh, serenity prayer. Why don't you read this out loud with me? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as you did this broken world as it is not as I would have it, trusting that you will make things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you in the forever and ever in the next. Amen.